0: Hello, and welcome to Talking Intellectual History. My name is Dr. Paul Sagar, and I teach political theory at King's College London. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Edward Hall, who is a lecturer in political theory at the University of Sheffield. And we'll be discussing his just published book, Value, Conflict, and Order, Berlin, Hampshire, Williams, and the Realist Revival in Political Theory, which has just been published by Chicago University Press. Hi, Ed. Hi, Paul. Ed, you must be very excited that the book is finally out.
1: Yeah, no, I guess I am excited that it's coming out. Uh, I just hope that some people will still be reading things in this dire age when they've got so many other things to stress them out.
0: Well, perhaps we can get into those kinds of issues in due course, as uh, I take it one of the reasons you're interested in these figures is precisely because they want to call more attention to some of the darker aspects of politics and issues which have perhaps been neglected comparatively speaking in more recent political theory. Um, But before we get into the details of those matters, why don't you just tell us a little bit about these three figures of Isaiah Berlin, Stuart Hampshire and Bernard Williams, um, that the book is centrally focused. Focused on?
1: Yeah, sure. So I was interested uh, primarily in the kind of realist movement in political theory that started gaining a bit of momentum about 10 to 15 years ago now, I think it was. Um, and the more I read on that and the kind of slightly weird set of methodological debates and disputes that came up from it... The more I realized actually that I think the most interesting contributors to that debate were starting from a particular way of thinking about philosophy and, in particular, about moral philosophy. So, one of the things people often say about realism is that it's a kind of uh, a way of thinking about politics that is, in some way, meant to say we don't need to put ethical considerations at the fore of our understanding of politics. Let's kind of do politics and political theory without thinking too hard about certain issues in moral philosophy. Um, And I think that's a, a mistake. So I think the most interesting realists actually have a particular set of views in ethics and moral philosophy, which drive a lot of their claims about the nature of politics. And in particular, I think that Berlin, Hampshire and Williams represent a certain kind of way of thinking about politics that takes the ideas of kind of value conflict and disagreement very seriously Uh, so I was interested in working out precisely why their kind of view of the limits of philosophical ethics led into a set of political positions which I think can be called realist although that that term is obviously kind of controversial and messy um and in a sense kind of unhelpful some of the time so I think one of the things I say in the book is that they can be seen as kind of anti-moralists maybe might be a slightly more apt term so they were not or their work tells against certain ways of thinking about the nature of morality and moral philosophy and I was interested in trying to see what kind of aspects of their work led to those realist views and also the similarities and differences between them.
0: So most listeners will be relatively familiar with the figure of Isaiah Berlin, who is, of course, one of the most eminent intellectual historians of the 20th century, and indeed one of the most famous political theorists, in particular famous for his lecture, Two Concepts of Liberty. And similarly, Bernard Williams is likely known by many people already. He held prestigious chairs in philosophy at both the University of Cambridge and at the University of Oxford. And he's widely regarded now as one of, if not the greatest moral philosophers of the 20th century. But Stuart Hampshire is possibly somewhat less well known and perhaps has been forgotten more than the other two have. So just just who is Stuart Hampshire, Ed? Just let us know a bit more about him in particular.
1: Yeah, So Hampshire was actually one of Berlin's students uh, at Oxford, uh, a little bit younger than he was. And he also, like the other two, had a bunch of kind of fancy academic jobs and was pretty well known um, in lots of the kind of elite institutions in in the UK and US. But he's not read very much anymore, I think, in moral and political philosophy. Uh, There's kind of very few people that, that have worked on his stuff. Um, which I think is is kind of strange, because I actually think he's got a very interesting set of views about the nature of ethics and morality. And I think he was a very good philosopher. There's just a sense in which, to, to kind of put it charitably, sometimes he's not that concerned with explaining every single thing that he thinks in the clearest possible way. And much like Williams and Berlin, he doesn't like the idea of having a kind of systematic theory or kind of overview that links up all of his work. Um, So I think that's one of the reasons that he's kind of neglected a bit more than the other two. I I think the other thing that's really important with him is he wasn't very concerned with directly spelling out what the practical implications of his moral and political thinking were in the way that lots of very famous contemporary political philosophers are. So... You know, if you think about someone like John Rawls, for example, it's kind of the whole point is to set out a set of pretty concrete political prescriptions or way of approaching politics, whereas Hampshire, I think, is a lot more elusive. He wants to kind of get you to start thinking in a particular kind of way, rather than necessarily telling you precisely what that is meant to actually kind of bring about in the world um, in some
0: kind of respect. Great. So we'll hopefully come back to look at those ideas in a little bit more detail in due course. But before we turn to explore each of your three thinkers in a bit more detail, I think it would be helpful for us to have a sense of what it is you take yourself to be doing in this book project, because you make a distinction in the introduction, drawing, in fact, on some work of Bernard Williams, between two different approaches that we might use here. One is called, or Williams called it, and you follow him, in calling it this, the history of philosophy, and the other is the history of ideas. And in fact, my, my I myself have used this um, in the past in my own work, but you take a particular stand on how you're using the materials here, and I think it would be helpful for listeners to hear you uh, explain, before we get into the detail of your readings, what it is you think you're doing here with this distinction.
1: Yeah, sure. So I think the distinction is essentially meant to to be something like this. So William says we need to make a distinction between the history of ideas on the one hand and the history of philosophy on the other. The former is essentially meant to be about kind of recovering what what did the text mean in the time it was written? Okay, what were the kind of intentions that were going on? What were the motivations? What was driving people to make these kinds of arguments where he says the point with the history of philosophy is to kind of reconstruct a certain way of thinking or a certain particular thinkers work in order to kind of ask well what does this do for us now or what does this mean to me now or what use can we make of this now and i think like all of these distinctions if you dig down into it things are going to get a lot more complicated and messy and it's going to be kind of tricky tricky to to completely justify that way of of splitting up two different ways of thinking about the history of philosophy But what I think Williams, Hampshire and Berlin did whenever they were writing was basically to do the history of philosophy. So I think they were interested in looking at the work of thinkers who interested them in order to try and make sense of things which puzzled them, that they wanted to gain some kind of better understanding of that mattered for them here and now. And obviously, I think anyone who does intellectual history is doing it for that reason to a certain extent. But I think if you take a kind of history of philosophy approach, you're very comfortable with the idea that you want to actually say, well, look, I either agree or disagree with this. This argument works or it doesn't work. And what does this help us to think about better that we wouldn't have understood here? And that seems to be the kind of primary aim of doing this way, of thinking about the the kind of history of philosophy or history of political theory, rather than coming up with a very nuanced, fine-grained historical account. So... One of the points that I make in the introduction when I'm talking about this is, is that I do think there is uh, there's a real chance to write a great piece of history of ideas on this period that would include these three thinkers. I think it would be fascinating and interesting. I'm not trying to do that in this book. I'm trying to kind of see, well, what have they got to say to a bunch of debates that are occurring in contemporary political theory?
0: right so one way that williams himself put this distinction is to say that the history of philosophy is philosophy before it is history whereas the history of ideas is history before its philosophy so it's a kind of about the priorities uh, the skill set you're bringing to bear and the interests that you have and um, and the partly the academic formation and partly the the questions that animate you in those different ways um and of course no person practicing the the history of philosophy is going to deny that they're doing some kind of history and and i think someone like williams in particular and i take it you here too would would rightly resist any accusation of anachronism that you're not using these texts simply to bounce your ideas off it's not simply to see if they can be made to work for you they have to still be rooted in in that history um but nonetheless the primary motivation is a philosophical one is that that a fair way to, to, to put it Do you think
1: yeah, no, I think that sounds right. I mean, and if you read someone like Berlin's work, it's just obvious that it's it's a response to a set of things that were bothering him at the time he was writing, and you're not going to be reading him very well if you don't understand that and kind of make that central. But I guess one thing I'd say there, building on what you said, is is the thing you that do next, once you've taken that into account, is to try and kind of scrutinize these ideas to, to see kind of what still is enlightening for you or what use you can make of them i think that seems to be the kind of key thing and again i'm sure lots of uh, historians of ideas are doing something similar to that they're just doing it in a kind of different way
0: yeah and uh, the way i think I've, I've put it in my own work is you need here is a division of labor there's no there's no sense in which one should automatically be the default and the only thing we do and that both kinds of uh, approaches can learn from each other. Um, so I think that, that's useful because, and as you said, uh, this is what Williams and Berlin in particular looks like they were doing in their own work. So it's apt that you would treat them in the same way. Um, and also apt because, as you've mentioned earlier, you're interested in this book in, in engaging to some extent in the more contemporary literature about realism and political theory. So in order to get there, what is it that you are, principally claiming about Berlin in particular I think we should start with with Berlin chronologically he came first as you say he supervised Hampshire um, and his his writings were incredibly influential So, so what is it that you want want readers to come away thinking about Berlin and political realism
1: Yeah, that's a really good question because it's very easy to dismiss the idea that Berlin ought to be treated in this way because he consistently said that you shouldn't (laughs) do political theory in the way that realists do. That may be a problem Uh, for you, so um,
0: I'm eager to hear how you're going to overcome that.
1: I mean, there's even uh, in, in one of his letters... I'm pretty sure he's commenting on an early draft of Williams' paper, Realism and Moralism in Political Theory. And he basically says, I just disagree with this, or something along those lines. (laughs) Um, No, so what I I do with Berlin, so I've I've got kind of two chapters on each of the thinkers in the book. And in the first chapter, what I'm really interested in doing is trying to make philosophical sense of Berlin's value pluralism. So to try and work out actually what that doctrine is and... In perhaps we should in mention to,
0: re- to readers here, you know, that's the thing he's most famous for in a lot of circles, yeah. right? Berlin yeah. is the value pluralist, the guy who said, we can't have all the things that we like simultaneously, and sometimes there'll be clashes between our values. But, uh, but despite his being famous for that, I think you're about to tell us that it's not as clear-cut as perhaps it's sometimes taken to be what, exactly what he meant by that.
1: You know, I, I think it's a lot more complicated than it initially seems. Um... For kind of lots of reasons. So what I'm interested in doing in that chapter in particular is trying to work out how, if at all, value pluralism can be distinguished from some version of kind of moral relativism. Because Berlin was very keen to say these aren't these aren't the same thing uh, whatsoever. And I think stuff does get quite complicated and, and tricky um, in in lots of different ways. And then essentially the way that I try to link that up with the kind of realist movement in political theory is by showing in the second chapter on Berlin that if you take value pluralism seriously, I think this essentially forecloses the attempt to theorise about politics in the way that lots of contemporary political moralists do. So So, so, it requires requires you to take conflict and disagreement more seriously. And in turn, I think that... It tells against approaching political theory in a particular kind of way, namely by trying to articulate some version of a kind of ideal theory which can guide your political judgments.
0: Um, right, great. So, so, so that's, why don't we just try and get into that a little bit, a little bit deeper? So, what, what exactly is the claim here? That if there is value conflict and we have to be value pluralists, why is it that ideal theory isn't going to be able to to guide our judgments in some way? Why? Why is? What's the connection there?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question, particularly because the most famous proponent of ideal theory, John Rawls, kind of basically says, actually, I am taking value conflicts and value disagreement very seriously. Right. That, that's the kind of motivation of his work. The point I want to make, I think, is that if you adopt Berlin's understanding of value pluralism rather than a kind of Rawlsian understanding of reasonable pluralism, it becomes much harder to see how you could actually come up with an ideal theory in the way that someone like rules does, where you are basically ordering values in a particular kind of way in order to come to these systematic judgments about how society ought to be organized. One of the implications of taking value pluralism seriously, I think is that everything just becomes a lot messier and more difficult than that. So if you can't rank values in a particular kind of way, if you recognize that you're always trading equality off against freedom or justice off against freedom and equality, for example, it leads to, I think, a much more piecemeal way of trying to do political theory and actually recognising in a way that lots of realists take very seriously, that you're making very contextual judgments about what ought to happen in a particular way and you're recognizing that actually those judgments can't be vindicated in the way that lots of philosophers would like to vindicate them so to use one of the terms Williams uh, uses a lot there's not going to be a kind of rationalistic decision procedure like the veil of ignorance for example or the original position these things are not going to enable you to come up with a unified theory which is going to be able to guide your judgment satisfactorily when you're actually confronted with situations where different values make different claims on you and this was one of the points that berlin wanted to make in his very famous lecture on two concepts of liberty so he says towards the end of that lecture if you take value pluralism seriously you ought to endorse the negative conception of liberty because you have to recognize that actually making choices is very valuable is had an absolute ton of stick for making that argument because lots of people have pointed out you can't really <laughs> make that kind of conceptual link between value pluralism and negative liberty. Um, but one of the points I want to make is that even though you can't make that kind of judgment, I think if you take value pluralism seriously, as Berlin understands it, it does rule out certain ways of doing moral and political theory and opens up a different set of questions. And lots of realists, so like William Gaston, for example... Williams himself really were, I think, deeply influenced by that idea of Berlin's and it did lead them to endorse a kind of realist view of political theory.
0: Just on two concepts of liberty, I reread it about a year ago ahead of teaching uh, kcl and it 's a much richer essay than one would guess from some of the some of the more recent treatments where it gets put forward as simply you know a cold warrior 's endorsement of one view over another and if you go back to it it 's much more ambiguous actually than than the sort of popular reputation and it shows as you say Berlin wrestling with some pretty pretty hard stuff, and I think it certainly gives the lie to him of being a, a simplistic thinker in these regards um, but but are you saying? ultimately here that um berlin himself wasn't consistent that if he would followed through with the implications of his own views he probably would have had to realize that he came out much closer to someone like williams than than he ever himself admitted or realized
1: i'm not i'm not sure it's necessarily a matter of him not being consistent enough in his thinking he's got this really nice point in one of his essays on kant where he basically says lots of ideas end up having some slightly weird effects and results that the authors didn't realize at the time. And I think that's kind of true of his value pluralism here. So I think it, it actually ought to lead people to endorse a particular way of thinking about political theory, which wasn't the way that, ber I mean, Berlin consistently said political theory is applied ethics. And I actually <laughs> think that if you take his, his value pluralism seriously, you shouldn't make that kind of claim, but there are elements of his thought where he is, I think, thinking in a, in a broadly realist way. So his account of political judgment, for example, looks like it is kind of moving in that direction, his work on the kind of sense of reality and so on and so forth. Um, so I'm not sure it's a matter of him not being consistent enough I think it's just the case that actually this dispute between realism and moralism, that's kind of raging in contemporary political theory was not raging when he was working. So it's, it, this is, this is where it would be kind of anachronistic to make that kind of complaint. Yeah. I think actually, I uh, and just to go back to the, to the, to the two, le- to uh, two concepts of, liberty lecture i mean I, I completely agree with you i think it's actually a really really interesting piece of political theory it was the first piece of political theory i ever read when i went to university
0: oh gosh, um, It didn't put you off because it's not exactly <laughs> easy to access is it i remember i sort no. of recommended it to our undergraduates and then sort of regretted it because i went back and reread it myself and thought this is heavy this is not, this is not ideal first year reading but it's—I mean—it's
1: a kind of great piece of political theory because when you read it for the first time, you sit there and have a think, and you're actually yeah. reflecting quite seriously on something that really matters. Uh, and Berlin has got so much stick because you know many of many of the claims that he makes in that essay don't stand up to much historical scrutiny, and he does treat people from the history of political thought in a in a strange and maybe slightly arbitrary way throughout. Um, but I think. It is problematic to kind of dismiss him on those grounds because that wasn't what he was trying to do. It wasn't meant to be, I don't think, a particularly careful piece of intellectual history. It was meant to be something that was meant to stimulate thought and provoke discussion
0: and to get people to
1: reflect on something that really matters.
0: And something that I find very ironic there is that the other thing he's known for from that essay is either sloppy intellectual history or it's this... False distinction between negative and positive that doesn 't work in various ways, and lots of analytic logic chopping can be used and, and then to show you know his distinction is, it doesn 't work and that he was you know too much a defender of negative liberty over positive liberty or, or something like that. But if you actually go back and read it he 's very clear that the appeal of positive liberty is serious and comes from the voice of the oppressed in particular, and that his coming down on the side of negative liberty is a is a hedge about well, I think this is the correct philosophical position, and I also think it's the less dangerous one. But I understand why people are drawn in the other direction, and the things drawing them in the other direction are real, and they are not an, an illusion, and they're not just making an intellectual mistake. And all that part of the essay just to seem to, Well, certainly I never encountered any of that part of it when I was learning about various theories of freedom as an undergraduate. And it's a shame that that's been lost, because I think that is his well maybe not realist side but his value pluralist side coming through think that there's real conflict here and there's there are real ideas being exchanged uh, there are real reasons why people are pulled in different directions on this question and it's not just that some people are wrong and some people are making mistakes it's, it's messier than that
1: you yeah, know i think that's exactly right so positive liberty speaks to something that matters yeah and right. it's not it's not an absurd position he's not saying that yeah what he's he's trying to say is that there's something about it which is potentially dangerous right and i think he makes some quite powerful arguments to that effect um and yeah there's been lots of very good philosophers who've said actually it's not as dangerous as he thought and there are ways to stop it becoming that dangerous and i think those arguments are very interesting um but no he's not i don't think he is just simply being dismissive and it's a real mistake to try and read him as, as doing that as a kind Definitely. of cold warrior in, in that kind of way.
0: Definitely. So moving on then to his, his uh, own, his own students, Stuart Hampshire. Um, so what, what is the continuation here of, of a realist mindset in what we might describe as the Oxford mid 20th century moral philosophers? Um, so, so yeah. What, what does Hampshire do with this?
1: So Hampshire is um, in many respects similar to Berlin. So they've got quite a lot of similar starting points. Um, Broadly speaking, Hampshire endorses most elements of value pluralism that that Berlin endorses. Um, But there's a couple of quite distinctive things that Hampshire adds, which I think really are worth reflecting on, especially if you're interested in the kind of realist movement in political theory at the moment. One of those in particular focusing on his... Uh, moral philosophy is his idea that actually one of the things that we need to pay much more attention to is the nature of moral conflict so not just moral pluralism but conflict and what he means by that is quite important because there's various ways that you could understand value pluralism one of them might be a kind of Berlinian way of just saying well look there's just so much good stuff out there that clashes we can't have it all and isn't that a bit of a shame It's not really Berlin's view, but that's one of the views that some some people have. Whereas Hampshire wants to say it's not just that there's loads of really good stuff out there. There are loads of genuine values, and they don't kind of cohere harmoniously. He actually wants to say one of the things that we need to pay attention to is the fact that when anyone is endorsing a particular way of life or constellation of values, part of what they're doing there is actually disparaging another set of values or another way of life so he actually says conflict is something that motivates us to endorse a particular set of values so we will look at for example religious fundamentalism at the moment and we will say i really dislike that and do not want to live that kind of life and many of the values we endorse will be a reflection of that rejection of another way of life and that's kind of interesting if you take the realist stuff seriously because it suggests that actually the idea that you might have a kind of reasonable pluralism where people can kind of agree to disagree in that, that kind of nice way is an illusion, actually. Things are going to be more bitter and more difficult than that. And I think that's really a significant part of Hampshire's thoughts. Um, and I think the other thing to, to kind of bear in mind about... I kind of think this is true of Berlin, Hampshire, and Williams, and I know people will disagree with this. They're kind of slightly despondent Aristotelians to a certain extent, yeah. So I think they do think human nature is where all of our ethical inquiries have to start. They just don't think that there's going to be a determinate enough conception of well-being that can actually lead you to a systematic account of the virtues that are going to lead to a flourishing human life. Um, And I think that comes out very clearly in Hampshire's work, more clearly than it does in Berlin's, although I think they both are actually on the same kind of page about that. Um, And I think the other thing that, that, that kind of matters about Hampshire in this respect, then, is realists are often portrayed as having a kind of celebration of conflict or there's a kind of link with agonism to a certain extent. And I think Hampshire actually enables us to see why someone might think that conflict isn't something to be kind of depressed about in a way that doesn't... uh, How can I put this kindly? In a way that doesn't necessarily end up with you having to endorse some of the more fanciful claims that some agonists make some of the time.
0: I'm going to push you on that. What do you mean by some of the more fanciful claims that agonists make?
1: So I, I think in some of the work on agonism there's a kind of celebration of conflict and disorder that politically is actually kind of strange and i think probably quite
0: dangerous just Um, just for some some readers listeners may not be 100 familiar with what we're talking about here so agonism has is the idea that conflict is inevitable in politics and should to some extent therefore be embraced and that we need to build our politics structured out of that disagreement at its heart that's probably not the best way of putting it um let's be clear what we mean by agonism
1: so i I mean i think you could say
0: something like
1: that so if you think about some elements for example of Chantal Mouffe's work there seems to be this celebration of something like the thing that you just described and i think hampshire wants to say actually in politics it can be really disastrous if that sort of thing goes too far while simultaneously wanting to say but this clearly is a central element of our moral thinking and it's something that we need to understand so that we can actually stop it becoming politically dangerous in the Right. right kind of way and that then leads into his work on justice which is the kind of center point of his um political theory so he comes up with an account of basic procedural justice which is more or less concerned with saying look there are always going to be this kind of interminable disagreements that we have to try and deal with politically the only way that we can do that actually is by trying to make sure that we hear the other side in these political disputes and give their claims fair hearing before we decide what to do and that's the kind of center point of his political theory and again this is quite a, um, hard idea to really get a grip on and it's quite hard to work out precisely what the implications of of taking that seriously are but hampshire essentially wants to say well look, once we take this idea of hearing the other side seriously it's going to enable us to reframe justice as a kind of negative virtue it's something that's going to stop domination suffering and misery it's going to combine with what he refers to as the kind of negative universals that that he comes up with in his moral philosophy, rather than enabling us to live harmoniously with our fellow citizens and to achieve justice in a kind of more positive sense than that. And I think what's interesting here is he was a committed socialist throughout his life. He didn't think that thinking negatively about justice in this sense stopped you from having more ambitious political program. It's just something that has to come first.
0: So so that idea of coming first, Leads us on quite neatly then to the third of your figures, Bernard Williams, because of course, Williams, um, in his political writings, is known in particular for taking over the phrase from Goethe that in the beginning was the deed, that we need specifically to think about politics by thinking about politics, by thinking about the stuff that actually happens, um, and taking that first and then thinking from that, not thinking first from theory or how we'd like things to be or an ideal situation but from how things really are so what is it that you're putting forward in this book um as regards williams and how does it lead on from berlin who of course was a close friend of williams's and hampshire who i believe was also uh, they were all they also knew each other so so what's yeah. the contribution here with regards to williams
1: yeah so i mean incidentally i i think berlin and hampshire both completely by that idea as well yeah so I think what Hampshire's trying to do when he's talking about justice is to actually give some kind of philosophical sense to an to a feature of our political lives and our mental lives that we all kind of get to a certain extent so he says we actually do weigh thoughts in our mind when we're deciding how to act and behave we do hear the other side when we're doing that so it's not about coming up with a kind of pristine set of moral intuitions and then building a philosophical theory on the top of that it is about reflecting on practice on on the ways that we experience the world. And Berlin's value pluralism is very similar in that respect, yeah? So all three of them essentially take very seriously the idea that the first task of moral philosophy is to make sense of our moral experience and life as it is actually lived, rather than trying to come up with some grand philosophical theory, which is gonna tell us exactly what we ought to be doing in difficult situations. I think I've completely forgotten what question you asked me now, Paul,
0: The question so was basically just an invitation to, to give us a presser of what you're saying about Williams.
1: Yeah, so Williams um, is obviously much more familiar to people who've taken the kind of realism, moralism debate seriously in contemporary political theory, because he's one of the two kind of canonical contemporary realists, the other one being Raymond Goyce. Um But again, what I have wanted to do, when I've been working on Williams, is to try and show that his political thought is motivated uh, by his views in moral philosophy and ethics. It's not something that can be detached from them very easily. So what I want to do in the, the kind of first of the two chapters on Williams is to kind of give an account of his work in ethics, which I think is useful if you want to take his political thought seriously, because it can show you where some of his ideas and motivations came from and what was kind of troubling him when he was concerned with the dominance of the idea that political theory is simply a form of applied ethics. Well, one of the reasons Williams rejects the claim that political theory is applied ethics is because... He doesn't really think ethics is applied ethics. So that, but maybe that you should sense, explain. Yeah, so.
0: Well, let, let's get into that a little bit because this is one of the sort of core ideas that you're pushing in the book and that you've touched on a few times today. And perhaps again for those who may not be so familiar with this debate, it's sometimes claimed that realists in political theory just want to say that there, there's there's no connection between politics and morality, and that politics is about power play and uh, use of violence and force. And so it's it's naive to think that morality plays a role here and you know that's the way we should be and and i think it's fair to say that more sophisticated realists would already say well that that can't be very realistic because many political actors take themselves to be acting in accordance with a certain kind of moral purpose so any realism that has no place for morals is a pretty unrealistic realism but i take it your 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 suggestion here is is much more subtle than that it's saying that it's not simply that realists think you have to detach you know ethics, this sphere of understanding how we should live and how you know, what duties we owe to people and say so sadly because of politics we can't always apply that, but we can still you know give a place for it when it enters people's psychologies I think it your claim here is a deeper one that the, the dominant way of thinking about moral philosophy amongst moral philosophers is being rejected by someone like Williams. He wants to say it's not just that you can't apply that to politics. It's that it doesn't even make sense when you're trying to understand ethics.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that is exactly what, what Williams very famously said for, for kind of a long time. He spent a lot of his career essentially trying to show everyone what was wrong with kantianism and utilitarianism the kind of two dominant ways of thinking about ethics um, and morality they are still the two dominant ways of thinking about ethics um, and morality and kind of in their place i think what he wanted to try and do was to show that even if you don't buy that way of thinking about morality so the idea that there are these kind of objective timeless moral principles which ought to guide all rational agents on pain of being irrational that doesn't mean that you can't adopt a kind of critical perspective and actually explain what might be wrong with a set of ethical practices and that you might not be able to think creatively about how you want to live his point was just that we need to be more realistic about what philosophy can actually do for us. Yeah? So he doesn't think that you can come up with a supreme moral theory which is going to resolve all of your anxieties about how you should live and how you can treat other people well. But that doesn't mean that you can't think in a way that's going to give you some critical insight on these practices. So in a sense, he was a skeptic about moral philosophy, but he didn't think the whole thing was kind of worthless and junk. He just thought we needed to be more realistic, actually, about what philosophy could help us to achieve. So again, I think this is a theme which unites the the three thinkers that I have focused on they all want to engage in this way because they think it's valuable. They just don't think it can do everything that lots of philosophers want it to do. And I think that does matter when we come to think about the kind of realist movement in political theory, because I think there's a kind of similar thought there. Yeah. So some realists do do all the things that you said. They do think that morality has got nothing to do with it. Okay. And I don't think those arguments are particularly convincing. Um, But that said, one of the things that all three of these thinkers want to do is to be realistic about the fact that ethical claims are very important in politics, but that that doesn't mean that we should not pay attention to things that are kind of distinctively political in the sense of, in the sense of the fact that what we have to do when we're thinking about these kind of moral claims and moral conflicts is to try and find ways of politically living with them. I think that's very important. So... The worry that realists have about someone like John Rawls, for example, I think, is that he's not actually really trying to help us to politically live with the fact of pluralism because he thinks it's easier to manage it than these guys think it is. Okay. So it's actually easier to simply cast off some people as being unreasonable for example than actually trying to think okay well given that there are people who endorse divergent moral and political views and have divergent interests how are we going to make sure that we can live together with those people without things descending into kind of chaos and anarchy even if this means that we're not going to be able to live in a particularly just society in a kind of rulesian sense and i I think that that's really important
0: and i suppose One point here would be, but we might still be able to live in a just society in a more negative sense in the way that Hampshire is putting forward. And that that's not nothing, that that's worth having. And I I think that's that's one of of these things, that's one of the things they want to say, right? Don't think that because you can't have the shining city on the hill that's pure and pristine, that the only thing you can have is a burning trash heap, right? Actually, we can do better than the burning trash heap, even if we can't have the shining city.
1: Yeah. And I think Williams is actually really clear about this. at the end of his most famous book, Ethics and Limits of Philosophy, where he essentially says, look, if you take kind of modern conceptions of moral philosophy seriously, they more or less suggest that if we can't have all of this stuff, we've got nothing and it's hopeless and it's just going to be fraud and deceit, coercion and power and misery. And he kind of says, no, there's just no reason to buy into that really crude dichotomy where you either have a moral life or you have nothing. I think he wants to say that there's a whole bunch of things between that we need to think in kind of shades of grey the whole time and there's a certain kind of realism in that idea that i think is very serious and i mean this just reflects one of one of the things that i find constantly puzzling which is the word conservatism so i'm just not sure what that means some of the time
0: so should we just just again if to clarify you... is are you alluding here to the fact that These three thinkers, in particular Williams, are sometimes accused of being conservative for holding these views. And that always comes with negative valence, that it's an accusation, it's a criticism. And I take it that you're saying that's both a mistake intellectually as a reading of their materials and also there's something odd philosophically going on there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that word would only make sense in the pejorative way it's used if there was some kind of alternative to it which made sense. And I think one of the things all three of these thinkers are trying to do is to say, actually, whatever the opposite of that conservatism is meant to be is not something that we've got any chance of having. Okay, so we can't be given the non-conservative view of ethics or politics that is this kind of... um, radical transformation of the status quo that is going to basically solve all of our ills and make us live uh, in a wonderful political society that's just not an option and it's not clear why having philosophical doubts about that is meant to mean that you are some kind of reactionary political conservative i just i don't see why those two things are, are taken to um to obviously Relate to each other in that kind of way. I think that's very, very clear with, with Hampshire and Williams, actually, if you read their stuff seriously. Um, Berlin is often referred to in those kind of political terms by people, given the sorts of issues he was concerned about when he was writing. You know? So he was incredibly critical of the Soviet Union and certain forms of thinking which he thought supported it and had motivated it um and i actually think if you read some of his letters he does come up with some pretty objectionable political judgments about stuff that that do sound that kind of way but it's not clear to me that his philosophy has to be interpreted in those terms i don't think there's any kind of necessary reason why it ought to be seen as a conservative way of thinking
0: and as you said before, Hampshire was a lifelong socialist and, of course, Williams was closely involved with the Labour Party and worked on numerous social justice reforms. Um, so it, it does seem to be uh, an intellectual mistake to think that having this kind of outlook must commit you to a certain kind of conservative politics. But it also seems odd to think that, that there can't be virtue in small c conserving things, that some of the things that we've achieved, and I take it this is another one of the points you want to make about these people, is they want to say, look, The societies that we're living in now are achievements and that they're not to be sniffed at and they can be lost and getting to the point where we can even have these discussions is a major achievement and not something you want to be too complacent about because it can go away again and when it goes away what you won't get is justice you'll get the exact opposite of justice and i suppose a figure that we haven't discussed so far but it's in the background at least of williams's thought is judith schlar and her idea of the liberalism of fear who i don't i don't recall schlar making it into the book directly at, um, at any great length but but she presumably is somebody else that you might have wanted to include in this in this uh way of thinking about politics
1: you yeah, know, I think that's right. So I do talk about Schlaw, uh, uh, yeah, no, a little bit in in the chapter on Williams's political thinking. And actually, Berlin, Hampshire, and Williams are all often referred to as advocates of the liberalism of fear. And I think that does make sense to to a certain extent. And if you if you're interested in this question about conservatism and, and you want to take that seriously, I think Schlaw a really interesting person to be looking at because I actually think if you take the liberalism of fear seriously and you look to the political world around us, you are going to be disgusted and horrified, and you are going to recognise that absolutely tonnes of things need to be changed. Yeah. But you think that while simultaneously recognising that actually liberal democracies do have a lot of things which are incredibly valuable, and a lot going for them in certain respects. So Schla, for example, is very serious about the rule of law. That is one of the principal political achievements, and it's something we need to take incredibly seriously and be thankful about now there's a sense in which the charge of conservatism thrown at these guys seems a lot more reasonable because there are some very important things which they simply didn't talk about because i don't think they were particularly concerned about them okay so there's not much of a discussion of race and gender in their work and that is something that you know people could reasonably complain about um but again even if you're thinking about those kinds of topics it's not clear that this body of work would have nothing of interest to say I mean one of the things that I think they're all right about that I think is worth bearing in mind is it's incredibly easy to look at the political world around us now and to try and blame the disasters of neoliberalism and western hegemony on everything and try and kind of put every single social ill at their door and actually they're kind of piecemeal approach to political thinking which wants us to take people's lived experience seriously and to think hard about kind of concrete cases suggests that those really overarching narratives are some things that we ought to treat with great suspicion okay and this is one of the points berlin wanted to make about marxism it's very very hard to endorse that kind of overarching analysis of the political world and i think that matters when we're thinking about some of the you know central political problems of this day and age that these people weren't writing about we still need to be skeptical about stuff about easy answers most of those easy answers are not going to be very accurate and very truthful
0: well, i think ed that's a really good place for us to draw this to a conclusion hopefully showing um that the history of philosophy uh, can both be history but also maybe help us think clearly about some of the challenges that we still face today and um, thanks very much for taking the time
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Paul.
0: No problem.